Hello and welcome to the Shepherd Walwyn podcast series. My name is Jonathan Brown. Shepherd Walwyn is a campaigning book publisher based in London, England. Our purpose is to uncover and promote new ideas to society's oldest problems. And whilst our specialty is ethical economics, something Anthony Werner, our driving force for over 40 years, has pioneered, we have branched out over the years to other related areas such as the environment and the lives and works of society's change agents. These podcasts promote ideas we're convinced can actually help us build a better society for all of us. So have a listen and be sure to share with your friends if you like them, but also tell us what you think. These are debates we all need to be part of. Today we continue our mini-series with Eddie Billamoria, author of the stunning four-volume work Unfolding Consciousness. Now as book four is a reference book for the series, this is the penultimate dialogue with Eddie. Book three, entitled Gazing Through the Telescope, Man is a Measure of All Things, has a lot of ideas, so we felt it was best to split the conversation into two. In this part, we look at the first half of book three. We've done our best to make this audio friendly. However, I do encourage you to watch this on YouTube if you can, or at least check out the diagrams in the video when you've listened to it. They made a massive difference to my understanding, and our feedback from listeners and readers suggests that they could help you too. Now we jump straight into this conversation with Eddie explaining what is consciousness and why we need to focus more on relationships than on things. So let's get into the interview. Mention it to most people and they say, how do you define consciousness? Now, a definition always depends on something else that needs to be defined and that depends on something else. Now, if someone said to me, define consciousness i would say to them look you've come to see me where did you come from wherever say you came from new york or cairo or bombay it was a journey can you define your journey no you've experienced your journey can you define it the experience is the inner subjective to live moment that you can bring up in your mind you can describe your journey but you can't define it you can describe it because you can put the inner subjective into an outward objective conceptual framework in words but the description is not the described so it's a problem with the scientific communities in general is they want definitions experience they're very uncomfortable with and you know eddie that's i was i actually when i was going through the preparation for this work mm-hmm. i was i came across the machinery metaphor or a mechanism mm-hmm. metaphor mm-hmm. and and it struck me that what so-called scientists say about machines tells me that they have no long-term relationship with a machine because <laughs> and and here's 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 why right because yeah, yeah. If, I'd my, like to hear that. my family is in engineering and and oh, mechanics right i've got a history my family has a history of engineering and mechanics so very much hands-on in a machine and when you when you listen to an expert mechanic talk about the machine or the car or the digger or anything else they do not see it as a group of parts they actually see it as an entity and as it's a li- yeah as and, a mechanically and, living entity and, and and they recognize and they even they talk about a machine 
as it has a personality. Now, mm. it's not to say that it does have a personality, that they are actually living entities, but there's a, something about the relationship of the parts that goes beyond the parts itself. Yeah. And if you have an old car that hasn't been taken care of, you will know <laughs> this because if you change one part, that changes every relationship and then everything starts to fall apart, doesn't it? Because it's like now you've got this brand new part in relation to all the other old parts and that now puts a strain on everything else because the relationships have now changed and it, i'm just thinking the problem isn't you know the, the problem is inexperience of all things and if you actually come in, bring it back to your experience of something that then is is a thing and i i, I came across a i got a phrase there it's a, like i thought a noun is merely a slow moving verb mm. Do you know, and, and I was I was listening to Ian's um, one of Ian's talks in his The Matter with Things, and one of the things he said is he wanted to say there's no such thing as things, and yeah. it's all everything's in process. Everything, the journey in is movement. not a noun; mm. it's a journeying, right? Mm. And it's what you're saying is how do you define which part of the journey do you want me to define? Mm. Because mm. I can I can maybe do that. I can describe it. But actually, as soon as I've described it, you've moved on to the next part of that journey from New York to London, right? Yes. yes. So what you've said that in, in a sense, everything has a soul, even an old car has a mechanical soul, so to speak. But um, when you talk about description, once you've described, it's moved on there is an old saying that the tree you described is never the same tree because it's moved on it's grown and so we like to say everything is in a state of being and becoming hmm. being if you like the noun and becoming the verb associated with it yes yes well, what a great way to start our conversation, Eddie. Mm. Um, and we're and we're here, and just to just to, to do the official pit rather than jumping into this amazing work that you produced, um, we're here to to explore volume three, um, which is officially that I guess kind of the final volume of the four volume series because volume four is a reference yeah. um, for the whole the whole thing, um, and yeah, it was very excited to carry on the conversation. Um, now, in the in the preamble to book three, if we if it's okay for us to get into straight mm, away. Sure, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, so in in the preamble, you describe it as man, a miniature universe, mm. a mirror of cosmos. Yes. Um. So, starting with that, why do you say that man mirrors the cosmos and is a miniature universe? I say that because there is one overall process that brings things about, whether it's on the cosmic scale or on the human scale, whether it's to do with the macrocosm or to do with the microcosm. So in the same way as the whole of man and by man we don't mean the male gender of course we're you know we mean the thinking entity uh, just as man displays 
essentially two primary aspects of the mortal and the immortal, which one can unpack into body, soul and spirit, soul being the intermediate, the interface between spirit and body. Similarly, the universe, the cosmos, displays the archetype, uh, the intellectual and the sensible, the spiritual aspect, the intellectual aspect, I mean the mind quality, and the sensible being the material aspect. So mm. by studying these aspects in man, one can understand the the greater picture, the macrocosm, by invoking the, the wonderful hermetic axiom as above, so below. And in fact, in volume one, I have a, a very uh, simplistic diagram showing how human birth mirrors cosmic birth. Hmm. By cosmic birth, I mean, <laughs> I'm not talking about the overall Big Bang, but, uh, about the... Um, evolution of let's say a solar system are you able to give an example of that well the 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 human womb so to speak uh, and the womb of the cosmos is um the um the anima mundi in many ways that uh, which has been the precursor of all the forms that are to develop the lifeblood of the human being is the blood fed from uh, mother to child, obviously, by the medical cord. The lifeblood of the universe is what Newton alluded to as um, a subtle spirit. And uh, in many ways, the pranic reservoir hmm. amazing now so one of the things that you're stretching um right now is my ability to perceive and to understand what you're saying and and in the mm. in the preamble you focus very much on that and and quoting mm. t.s Eliot, which was yeah. a, just the most amazing lines of of mm. knowledge of speech but not of silence yes knowledge of words and ignorance of the word all our knowledge brings us nearer to death but nearness to death no nearer to god mm um what is it that that causes you to place such an emphasis on on our sensitivity of the instruments of perception um and of our physical senses yesterday i was listening to a, a short interview with stephen pinker the uh psychologist and author he was going on and on about being rational and evidence and evidence what causes me to place such emphasis on the sensitivity of the instruments of perception is that you only see what you are capable of seeing. So, um, as William Blake said, uh, Eliot, of course, but if the doors of perception were, how did he put it, cleansed, everything would appear as it really is. So, if your spectacles now 
were fogged, you would have a very different perception of the world around you. So the sensitivity of your instruments of perception, of your physical instruments and high instruments, is of the utmost importance. Uh, Plotinus uh, mentioned that. St. Paul mentioned, did he not, that if we see through the eyes of flesh, we, we will see things of the flesh, which is fine. But if you want to see things of the spirit, then your eyes have got to be more refined to see things of the spirit. A piano, a violin, any musical instrument will only play as good a tune as it is sensitively capable of doing so by virtue of its tuning and its construction. Mm. So I would say to scientists that, yes, yes, evidence, but you never ask who is the person capable of seeing this evidence, or seeing, experiencing this evidence. If I showed any person ordinary man an experiment to do with colors well he would see colors blue green pink and all the rest of it if i showed the same experiment to say isaac newton he would see a whole spectrum of possibilities he is looking at the same thing but because his instruments of perception are far more finely tuned he will see far more into it than a person with you know, opaque instruments. And and this is, and I know if we, if we remind our listeners um, and our viewers just that, that at the very start of your work, you talk about the importance of of their experience mm. and that it, and it's and everything in many respects comes back to that. It and it's, it's our challenge to become more and more refined in our mm. ways of of sensing. Mm -hmm. which i guess is that and that for me is it is it, it's a wonderful encapsulation of obviously the five senses but by mm -hmm. sensing there's something in my my own ex, my own view is there something bigger than that and i think that's what you're getting into isn't it in the in the a new way of knowing which mm -hmm. is k-n-e-w way of yeah yes deliberately um, and a new way of looking mm -hmm. so what are the new ways of knowing well you can break them into three ways, all of which have their relevance. The first is looking through the world of the senses, which is fine. But then all you will have is what you see in front of you. And you will be essentially ignorant about the higher purpose behind things. The second way, which is the most problematic, <laughs> is learning the way of learning but the trouble with learning is it's a two-edged sword there's the beautiful saying you will experience and learn the blossoms of life but under every flower a serpent coiled so this is so to speak the way of probation where you do learn things but you also learn to taste not only sweet fruit, but bitter fruit. And having necessarily been through that period of probation, then there is the final learning, 
which is omniscience, wisdom, completely um, having put aside all ego and all personal self-indulgence because we've learned that under every flower a serpent is coiled so don't tarry don't linger and get engrossed in the perfume of that flower in case the serpent gets you move on from there to higher vistas of learning mm. what a wonderful way of starting the um mm. the conversation um yes so um with that in mind of the importance of our of our focusing on our own you know, journey to wisdom mm. or, you know um in chapter one you talk about the symbolism and the language yes, of the mystery title. teachings mm -hmm. um why is symbolism so important to an understanding of the inner realms of, ex yeah. of existence yeah it is absolutely vital because ordinary language is wedded to a linear and intellectual mode of thought which is of course very well suited to conveying precise information and it's vital for that you don't use symbolism to describe how you change the piston rings in your car you know it's precise and literal but um objective facts and scientific theories are all very well but uh, it, 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 it they are a poor medium for conveying the subjective and multi-layered realms of experience and the deep truths that are necessarily beyond words and above left brain thinking so that is why the scriptures that recourse to parable to allegories to metaphor and above all to symbols because a symbol unlocks meaning at different levels and uh, there is a, a saying that symbolism is the pictorial expression of an idea or a thought now a symbol is not an icon for example a traffic light is an icon it's not a symbol it has a definite meaning red means stop green means go orange well there's a bit of ambiguity there <laughs> you can either stop or go forward but an icon as on your computer has a fixed meaning a symbol can be taken at varying levels and and some of the um you have a number of symbols in there yeah, in the, the labyrinth and the forest and yes. you've got the labyrinth of yes. some of the things that stand out the labyrinth um the forest um, and mm -hmm. also tarot cards as well come yeah, up i've got uh, can i share uh, a picture of the tarot cards would this be appropriate now yeah or... sure you sure okay so if i share screen i've singled out three of the tarot cards that uh, i felt were most useful for our conversation the first one is uh, called the hermit and as you can see it says concealing the light of wisdom now what's it showing it's showing an aged man leaning on a staff he carries a lamp that's partly concealed within his cloak now the aged man the hermit is the wisdom seeker 
It also represents the secret organizations that um, explore wisdom. The staff, the yellow-green staff in his hand, is man's enduring support, his mind. And the cloak, of course, is man's bodies. And the lamp is Atma, the spiritual light, whose light in the average person is greatly dimmed by having to shine through the cloak. But one can still see the light through the cracks in the cloak. But when the man attains wisdom, the light shines fully and brightly. The third one, and I'll come to the lovers, the second, the third one is called the judgment, which is liberating the spiritual nature. And here we see three figures rising from a coffin or a sepulchre. Now, the three figures represent the immortal triad of Atma, Buddhi and Manas, the divine self, the intuitional principle and the higher mind. And of course, the sepulchre, the coffin, is the mortal personality. And when the mortal personality, when we slough our mortal coil, we liberate these three beings, the three figures that you see. Now, the lovers is the most relevant, I feel, <laughs> to most people most of us, we see in the middle a youth flanked by two maidens, and both maidens love him. This is very important. They both love him. One maiden, the one on the left, is called vice. The one on the right is called virtue. But the youth must choose which one he will love. And as I said, both of them love him. Your virtues and your vices both love you, but you have to choose. And so what this card shows us is the price of free will, the price of free will of choice is responsibility. The price of free will or choice is responsibility. And just developing this theme, in the next slide, we see Plato's teaching on the double nature of the mind principle, exactly what I said, the problem of good and evil. Why do I do something my conscience says I shouldn't do? That's the vice bit. But why sometimes do I act virtuously? That's the virtue bit. And here we see the tarot card represented in terms of Plato's wonderful teaching that psyche, the soul, is a generic term and soul can rise to ally with noose, the spiritual soul, so to speak, and attain immortality. Or psyche can choose to descend and attach itself to annoya, the folly, the irrational animal soul. And we can correlate this 
teaching of Plato, but the tarot cards, here we are. So I'm going to stop sharing now, uh, Jonathan, and um, if you want, I can talk about the labyrinth and the forest uh, uh, very quickly, if you like. Yes, please. Uh, no, cause any, and in your book, there's, there's two types of labyrinth as well. So if you can, uh, yes, that's very you important. Can take us through the, that. The multicursal and the unicursal. But before that, let's stop sharing. So the, the forest is a fairly obvious one where uh, you, you're lost uh, in, in, the, in the thick of the forest uh, through the trees and the woods. And um, you can only find your way out by using all your intelligence and um, all your powers of discernment and perception and most of all keeping calm. <laughs> so the, the forest is of course uh, a well-known symbol for the confusion of the average state of mind, but also pointing that there is a way through the forest. If we follow the clues, if you see a path, if you hear some animal sounds that you recognize and can take that as a lead. Now the labyrinth is fascinating. The multicursal labyrinth means uh, you are faced with a multiple choice of paths and you really are lost. You don't know which path to take. And the Hampton Court maze uh, is a, an example of that. The unicursal labyrinth is a, essentially a spiral that even though it winds round and round and goes all over the place, there is essentially one direction that leads to the center. Now, the interesting thing is the Cretan labyrinth at Knossos in the legend was a multicursal labyrinth. You entered and if you didn't get devoured by the Minotaur, you got lost. But on the Cretan pottery, we see that the labyrinth is not multicursal, but unicursal. And it makes this point that we enter life and we find everything is, well, a bit like a maze. But through learning, through bitter experience, through joyful experience and through wisdom, we transform our personal multicursal labyrinth into a unicursal labyrinth. So we have finally found a way through the labyrinth. And even though initially we were faced with a multiple choice of paths, we now have sufficient focus and understanding to see where we are going, even though it may take us all over the place and up and down. Brilliant. Thank you. I know in the, in this chapter also you talk about um, how symbols can get distorted. Yeah. And, yeah. and one of the examples of that you oh, gosh, that yes. is animal yeah. sacrifice. Yes. Um, A very good point you raised. It's not only symbols, Jonathan, it's anything that starts off in its purity, gets distorted, gets polluted and gets taken literally. And here <clears throat> the problem is taking things literally. Now, the animals that were typically <coughs> sacrificed, sorry, were bulls and rams and also humans by the pagans. And when the perennial wisdom degenerated 
in the hands or the wisdom never gener degenerates but uh, it, it was degenerated by people who did not understand it and they didn't realize that the sacrificing of the bull and the ram does not mean the sacrificing of a poor creature it means the sacrificing of the bull nature within the person now what does the bull signify earthiness truculence impulse and bulls a lovely creature of course but the bull nature in a person uh, signifies this earthiness this quality of obstinacy smashing things down going all over the place so it was the bull nature that had to be burned in the fire not the poor actual bull and this is where animal sacrifice uh, took on uh, you know a, a ghastly um, aspect i know you, you mentioned how that it was a and the the idea of sacrifice is a it's an example of the deterioration of a society yeah. Yeah. not the essence of what made a society great whether you talk about yeah. the the mayan cultures the incas and the aztecs yeah. um and even the and yeah. the hawaiians as well right mm -hmm. yeah so so we continue this theme then of mm -hmm. uh, of a, of symbolism and symbolic representations into chapter two when we look at the uni unity of the cosmos mm -hmm. nature and man and you make the controversial statement that astrology is a royal science um, and not a pseudoscience, um, as I think most engineers and scientists would argue, or even they wouldn't even argue. Yeah, there's a knowing that astrology is meaningless, and it's only for for foolish people to be polite about people who believe in astrology. Um, so, firstly, maybe you can, it's helpful to just to say, right, pseudoscience, what is that, and then why is um, why is astrology? not only not a pseudoscience but actually a royal science let me say jonathan that when i was working for my phd i did a full course on astrology and the only way to find things out is to learn about it and not uh, accept some of the nonsense that people talk about it but what is a pseudoscience a pseudoscience is what something that appears to be scientific but is not it wears a mask of science rather than being science itself so pseudoscience is a pretended or spurious science now those who rubbish astrology are not entirely wrong if they base their opinions on newspaper astrology on the columns of popular newspapers without bothering to dig deeper as genuine scientists ought to do but what are they missing if astrology endeavored to explain the dynamics of general relativity and obviously totally floundered astrology would not just be a pseudoscience it'd be a rubbish science equally when physical science tries to understand planetary influences and correlations through a purely materialistic lens then it too flounders physical science in fact becomes a pseudoscience because it pretends to know what it does not know 
and so it assumes a mask of science. So there is a knowledge and a knowing that can be derived by means that are not amenable to physical science. And that knowledge central to astrology is transcendental metaphysics dealing with the greatest and the most abstruse problems concerning the universe and man, which is a far cry from pure materialism. So science or pseudoscience depends not just on the subject, but it depends crucially, crucially on the context of that subject. I would go so far as to say that materialism per se, when it tries to explain consciousness, materialism, materialistic science is a pseudoscience because it wears a mask of science. It does not dig deeper and try to understand what lies beyond and above materialistic science. Some of the greatest scientists and mystics and philosophers were astrologers. Isaac Newton famously, though he didn't talk about it for obvious reasons, Johannes Kepler, Carl Jung, and many others. So astrology concerns the science of soul, not the science of body. And the medical side of astrology is fascinating. There are very interesting correlations between uh, planetary configurations and the propensity for human disease. Michal Gauquelin was a very famous <clears throat> French statistician who set out to disprove astrology, but working in the true spirit of science, he was completely convinced. And he wrote a fascinating book showing how great sportsmen great scientists and great artists have certain planetary configurations which are statistically demonstrable way way beyond any charge of chance and uh, coincidence and all that so again i say to scientists who rubbish astrology first you must study in order to learn you must learn in order to understand you must understand in order to judge is that a bit heavy <laughs> no no it's fantastic it was, can uh, i give yeah. you the quick example of um, barrett uh, i think it i think it was uh, barrett who was giving a, a lecture on telepathy at a scientific conference and um, sir william barrett that is yeah and uh, one of his colleagues came up to him afterwards and says, you know, that was a great lecture, but you know, it's all tosh, you know, it's all tosh. And Barrett very calmly said, you are a scientist. When you have spent as many weeks as I've spent years researching these things, I will value your opinion. And his colleague very valiantly said, yes, you are right. I have no right to my opinion without researching it and yeah, i believe he then was quite convinced about telepathy on the basis of his own research <laughs> well no i mean in, when i studied the laws of influence there's a guy called um robert cialdini who's um yeah 
the most quoted social scientist in the world, I think, still. Um, and he talks about the way in which as as rules of thumb. So, for example, the, the idea that if you pay more for something, it tends to be better quality. Mm. So a way in which you can get tricked into buying something that's rubbish is actually if it's higher price, higher price. than a normal option. <laughs> I think, oh, you know, normally and, and as a rule of thumb, that's accurate. And I think as a rule of thumb to go with the general view of society or whatever tends to be accurate right so if, if you hear a group of of, of well-respected scientists say one thing such as astrology is meaningless then as a rule of thumb you can generally say you know what? i can afford not to investigate that or i won't investigate um telepathy or other things because every because the people that i respect say that it's rubbish so i will take i will take an unscientific view of their scientific explorations or their conclusions instead of saying as that scientist said you're absolutely right i don't have a right to that opinion yet i'm going to look into it myself or i'll say Do you know what i just won't have an opinion i'll just say i don't have an opinion on that um and then you know and then you get into the other you know the astrological and the astronomical um and the combinations and the way in which those are linked in ancient societies that then becomes more interesting doesn't it and the way in which uh, what what were the advanced civilizations of the, the egyptians and the and the mayans and and other societies that we've admired over time they had a much closer relationship between astrology and astronomy didn't they yes because they saw all life as an organic unity they didn't split off mineral life from human life from planetary life they saw the organic uh, unity and the underlying interconnections mm. yeah yeah brilliant so so readers will get a lot more in this in that chapter as well there's some fascinating stuff um about what you describe as the um as a benbean tablet of isis yeah. and which we're, let's not get into um today just because of the there's so much in again so much in the book so we're, we're moving through this journey of of symbolism in the mm -hmm. perennial philosophy um, and so we've looked at things like the labyrinth, tarot, and the forest, and now we're moving into into man and the mm -hmm. human body as as symbolism. Um, so, and there's, I just wonder if you could look at and 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 tell us just what does the symbolism of the human body tell us over and above the so-called facts and and medical data about the body? Yeah, it tells us essentially about the human nature the state and condition rather than the human body physical constitution and mechanisms so medical science is absolutely supreme in telling us about the body the mechanisms but the human being who works through his body is not the same as just his body so symbolism here has a great part to play in telling us um, how the human being relates to all of nature and if you um, think of consciousness expressing through various vehicles 
we can see how consciousness expresses through the various vehicles of the human being as expressed through symbolism. And I've got a slide uh, showing that as well, if you'd like to see that. So we're talking of uh, symbolism and the human body and why we say that man is the measure of all things. And this slide just shows the three grand centers of consciousness and power in the human body, always bearing in mind that we are a complete human being. But there are three centers, the heart center, obviously the brain and the generative system superior second uh, the, the higher center and the lower center now these have different functions and their roles are superior the brain has greatest physical dignity but the generative system even though it has the least physical dignity, it has the greatest physical importance because it's obviously the source of power through which physical organisms are produced. The heart is, of course, the source of life. Now, this all-important brain that neuroscientists are so obsessed with, it is the link, the brain is the link by which and through which rational intelligence life and form in other words spirit and matter are united and depending on one's nature if one is a complete materialist the lower center of course is the most active needs no explanation for the typical highly intellectual scientist type it's the intellectual center of course but with the initiate everything is in balance now the heart the brain and the generative system are symbolized in all sorts of ways. Um, you have the sun, you have the radiation from the sun, and you have the warming quality, the physical aspect of the sun. That's just one example. The thing I think that that that, that mm -hmm. steps um, to me here, Eddie, is the. Um... So, for example, if I actually believe, if I was a materialist, mm. if I if I believed in that, I could actually, I would spend more time improving the physical mechanism mm. than than I do. Because one of the things that surprises me is that so-called scientists, and especially scientists in the health field, yeah. they're often unhealthy and physically totally. unhealthy. <laughs> you know, there's the predominance of 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 knowing in a in an intellectual sense mm. versus knowing in an experiential sense that so i have integrated my philosophy into my being and you can see that you can see that i'm healthy and and vibrant and you know i'm a 50 odd 60 year old guy and i look 30 um and i'm in great physical health i've got i'm very strong and and i can do everything that that a younger person can do because i'm actually i'm actually come a fulfilling that source of power um and also then something else in the in the work in the book that you do you talk about um neurocardiology 
and the yes. primacy of the human heart, which I think is a is a wonderful a wonderful way to utilize more skillfully the generative systems of the of the body in a way that lifts you up to the higher levels of of consciousness i just wonder if you could take us through that do you want to stop sharing the screen um, i have um oh no i haven't sorry yeah yeah you stopped the presentation oh, yeah. i think yeah there we that's go. Fine, yeah. yeah yes i think neurocardiology is a wonderful uh blossoming um dimension in medical science still i would say very much in its infancy because everything sort of you are your brain as the saying goes <laughs> now there is no end of hard scientific clinical evidence that the magnetic field the electromagnetic field and the electrical field of the heart are several orders of magnitude greater than the equivalent ones in the brain and there are neurons in the heart and of course neurons in the gut <laughs> and increasingly neurocardiology is showing that problems with the heart typically heart attacks it's not just because you've been smoking a lot or drinking a lot or whatever it's your emotional life it's your feeling nature that so strongly impacts your heart our very language our language puts the emphasis on the primacy of the heart we refer to a loved one as a sweetheart not a sweet brain we learn music by heart we don't don't learn music by brain we say we are heartbroken we're not brain broken our very language has evolved driven by the consciousness to show and indicate the primacy of the heart and to use the rather simplistic analogy i think in the book the brain objectifies and as i showed in the slide it is the link by which thought rational intelligence are united so the heart provides so to speak the invisible carrier wave the brain makes it objective in space and time so as the moon reflects the light of the sun the brain so to speak reflects the light of consciousness from the heart there's a wonderful saying that as a man thinks with his heart so he is i would love to see more research done on neurocardiology heart transplants provide a very good indication of the characteristic changes in personality when um someone has been given a heart from someone else so we've been looking at the at the human body in that mm. then mm. um what what exactly do you mean by the human kingdom yes that's important using the analogy of water h2o now h2o can express obviously as ice water and steam all of which are visible and superheated steam which is invisible we should look at the human being as a phase state of consciousness a phase state of consciousness so the human kingdom 
is the phase of consciousness that is expressing through humanity as consciousness has expressed and is expressing through the mineral, the plant and the vegetable kingdom. That lovely um, uh, poem by Rumi that I died as a mineral and I became a plant. I died as a plant and became an animal. I died as an animal, became a human being. Where was I any less by dying? These are kingdoms of nature. They are complexes of matter, physical and non-physical, to express the indwelling consciousness. And and finally on that, on chapter three, um, when someone exclaims, I am God <laughs> or I am the truth, what, what, what do they mean, Eddie? They're too diametrically opposed. When the tyrants of this world, let's not name them, explain uh, or exclaim uh you know I, I am the truth or i am god as they they've been known to say it is a huge outpouring of the mammoth ego and the tyrant annihilates other people that's obvious the tyrant and the despot annihilates all opposition other people when the mystic exclaims like um a halaj I, I gave the example in the in the persian market when he explains i am the truth and i am god it is an annihilation but an annihilation of the ego he has completely eradicated all sense of the personal self so having merged into the universal self, he is fully entitled to exclaim, I am the truth and I am God. In the one case, it's an outer annihilation. In the second case, it's an inner annihilation. Unfortunately, it's the same words, but they mean such different things coming from different people. Hmm. Yes, brilliant. Um, so, so we're moving through our our symbolic journey mm -hmm. in this work, and I and I think I, my feeling is we're getting into deeper, um, yeah. <laughs> and deeper expressions of of the symbolic nature. And the and just reminding readers, we're integrating the different levels of the mm. of the human or of consciousness, um, and we're moving into now symbolic representations of the principle of man mm -hmm. um, in chapter four. Um, could you could you tell our, our listeners what exactly do you mean by the principles of man? Right. By the principles of man, I mean man's anatomy and physiology, not medically, but his subtle anatomy and his subtle physiology. His subtle bodies, uh, his constitution, subtle bodies and his expression through those subtle bodies. So the, the examples I've used are, of course, the lotus or the rose and the inverted tree. And in the Kabbalah or the Kabbalah, however you pronounce it, the Sephirothic tree is an absolutely central teaching of Kabbalistic philosophy. 
And did I did I see that you've got some images for yes. us, Eddie? Yes, definitely. I think you like those. So share screen. So the lotus is one of the oldest and one of the most sacred symbols used in the East. And the, the rose used by the Rosicrucians, of course, in the West. And what's so significant about the lotus? Well, firstly, it's got its roots in the mud symbolizing stability in the material world. It's got its flower floating on the water, symbolizing receiving sunlight, the spiritual light. But the stalk going from the roots to the flower is equally important. It provides stability of a different kind. It provides emotional stability. So the roots provide physical stability. If the stalk were weak, then the flower would just keel over and topple. So one needs to be emotionally strong so that we can then support the flower on uh, floating on the water. In this uh, picture, you see how the physical body of man is symbolized by the outer petals. The subtle bodies of man, the etheric double, prana, the desire nature, the mind principle, is symbolized by the inner petals. But most importantly, the seed pod of the lotus, when all the outer petals and all fall off, we grow a new flower from the existing seed pod, which really symbolizes that Everything has its origin in spirit, and evolution only uh, or evolution begins from above and proceeds downwards, not the reverse as taught in Darwinian theory. So if I show you now the next slide, which is the evergreen tree, and if you remember in the podcast one, I explained how the perennial philosophy has been likened to the evergreen tree, which always produces the same fruit, but never exactly the same type of fruit. The perennialism, the word used by Albert Schweitzer, but the tree has its roots in heaven, the perennial tree, and not on earth. Again, conveying the idea that all things have their origin in spirit and evolution pr proceeds downwards. So there's been a gradual materialization of forms until there is an ultimate and fixed level of debasement. And in fact, the Egyptian pyramid also symbolizes the same idea. So the apex of the pyramid is the mystic link between heaven and earth and stands for the root of the tree in this uh, picture while the base of the pyramid represents the spreading branches because it extends to the four cardinal points of the universe of matter the universe of matter so if i move on to the kabbalah that's the most powerful how did the world come into being the great schiller whom beethoven immortalized said this that the universe is a thought of the deity and this ideal thought form has overflowed overflowed into actuality 
and the world was born thereof, has realized the plan of its creator. And it's therefore the calling of all intelligent people to rediscover the original design. And if the universe is an outpouring of the thought of deity, so is man. And therefore man is a miniature universe. It's, man is a thought in the mind of deity. Now let's just look at this word, our overflow, overflow. What happens when your milk overflows? When your milk overflows, it first flows onto the hob and the kitchen table and then onto the floor. It doesn't flow upwards. In other words, there is a descent, a movement downwards from the origin to the final point of descent. And the Kabbalah shows again that in order to create a universe, we must first have deity in repose, then deity emanating as the boundless light. Just as we go to bed at night, we repose, we awake, we awaken, and then we act. So in our case, it's repose, sleep, awakening, and action, repose emanating in the boundless light. In the Kabbalah, the macrocosm is stratified, so to speak, into the unmanifest world and the manifest worlds, the world, formless world of spirit, and then all the manifest worlds, which start with the archetype, the creative, the substantial, and the material, physical. Man is a miniature universe, so we are made in exactly the same way. Atma, the spiritual soul corresponding to the world of divine names. Manas, the human soul corresponding to the archangels and the world of creations. The terrestrial corresponding, of course, to the physical material. And the tree of life knits all this together, showing the correspondences between the various organs and functions of the human body and the human being. These spheres are called sephiroth, in other words, globes or spheres of influence pertaining to the context and the plane on which they are. So Malkuth is the last sephiroth pertaining to the human kingdom and obviously therefore must correspond to the two feet. Mm. Wow. I think we'll stop sharing there. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I um, won't rub Sorry, one, go on. The thing that stands out for me there using that um, diagram, Eddie, is is mm. the, the, the hermetic axiom and, and mm. as above, so below. Yeah. Um, and, and I know, I mean, you, you place a great deal of emphasis on the, on the axiom mm -hmm. um, and the related issues of analogy and, and correspondence. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, so, so why do you think that is? And then given what you perceive to be the importance of it, um, what attention do you see establishment science giving or not giving to, to the hermetic axiom? I really don't believe, Jonathan, that science gives it any attention consciously. Uh, 
they obviously do in a, well, not, I w- wouldn't say unconsciously. Science, of course, looks to nature to try and understand problems and solve problems. I believe the man who um, discovered, or, or yeah, uh, Velcro, you know, the Velcro tape, got the idea from seeing how insects with their curled up legs can stick to branches and leaves and that kind of thing. But I don't think science looks to the heavens, so to speak, in order to understand problems on Earth, because looking to the heavens requires a certain degree of reverence. And that's a quality that I'm afraid is rather sadly lacking in science and scientists. And, you know, Eddie, on that, you just remind me of the So my background, obviously, as people may know by now, is economics. Mm. Yes. Um, and that and the thing that it, that for me, it's, a, it's an it's an inhuman or a non-human mm. science or a, mm. it isn't it isn't a philosophy the way that it's described today mm. as one of of one belonging to nature. Mm. And actually, economics is linked to ecology, mm. right? Because should be, yeah. the first principle of economics, as it's currently taught, is scarcity. And yet a mere glance at nature will tell you that. And as a gardener, your problem as a gardener, if you're any good, is one of abundance. And that's why I love the phrase that you described there of overflowing overflowing because that is the nature of nature is to overflow isn't it is to fill i mean whether you, you know you say nature abhors a vacuum but just in the most positive sense is once you once you create the environment for for natural things to express themselves or to grow or to become what they what is in them then your problem is one of abundance of having too many plants of having too many fruits too many apples that you literally you could i mean we were feeding a school of people for with all the apples on our two trees because there were just so many of them mm. um and it is that absence of of abundance that's um that's the key and so they're not they're not looking to say well if we are not representing as above so below if if our science is not in essence, the same as as what we see around us, and our science must be wrong because we're not expressing the the deeper or the greater truth. Um, or impoverish you. You've struck a very very important note there, Jonathan. Uh, overflowed. It is really an outpouring of love, and uh, it's not being sentimental at all to say that the whole act of creation or emanation is an act of love because if you love someone you express there is an outpouring from you if you love gardening you express through your flowers and your trees if you love music you express there has to be an outpouring from within and that outpouring is of the nature of love if you like to call it that Mm. so that's a very important point you made and um Talking about the hermetic axiom, the the great Newton worked entirely in accordance with these principles of uh, as above, so below. If I quote, that which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracles of the only thing, the miracles of the only thing. 
So here is a very meaningful slide on showing the hermetic axiom and Newton's translation of it. Now, I put this to you, Jonathan. How many scientists would have the humility to read this word-for-word -word translation by Newton of the hermetic axiom? What we see is a reflection of the divine in our material world. And the quote by Newton I read out was this, but there's so much more. And what is that a translation of? When it says a translation by Isaac Newton found among yeah. his alchemic... Oh, it's a, it's a translation of the Emerald Tablet of Hermes Trismegistus. Right. And I've Amazing. given uh, other translations as well in, in Volume 1. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, it's, find it, I do find it... I mean, it's kind of funny. It's not funny in the effect that mm. it's had. Mm. But the way in which... Um, scientists will take insights from a great scientist and then for anything that doesn't match their view of the world mm. they ignore it and they say oh you know it's like it's like you know isaac isaac newton must have had a bad day when he was when he was getting into into these as above so the, the hermetic axiom let's ignore that and like with you know alfred wallace um oh yeah he, he made some great insights at the same time as darwin but let's let's forget his his focus on spirituality at the end of his life that he said was more important. Uh, well, they won't focus on that. And um, and the Absolutely idea that, right. that, that Newton was doing those things and that was that was the foundation of his philosophy. And it wasn't in spite of it was because of he had those insights that he had the science what we describe as the scientific insights because the deeper truths allowed him to to surface the truths of in nature that we see today, right? Yes, scientists will arbitrarily use Occam's razor, or as someone once put it, Occam's hatchet, <laughs> to slice off whatever does not suit their materialistic convenience. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, um, I mean, it's, and then we, we move into like the area that I, some of the areas I focus on, which is the, the whole round, um, you know, neuroscience and psychedelic mm. research and stuff. And and the, the 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 complexity they create to to avoid the the acceptance of a higher level of consciousness mm. um and the the transcendence of the ego and what that actually mm. means mm. um just unnecessary it's a reversal of occam's razor isn't it unfortunately it, it is yes it, um, it is a back to front thing yeah mm. um, so on this in the chapter we're talking in the in the the law of analogy you talk mm. about analogy and correspondence and on the diagram that you showed there was a petal of um of things like analogy correlation connection mm. Mm. relationship correspondence and harmony um and then we and we move into the divine mandate mm -hmm. uh, and maybe maybe we could you could you tell us a bit about the divine mandate yes in mathematics we're taught algebra and what is algebra it is a statement of universals or a statement of the general that applies in a particular field of context so the simplest algebraic formula is distance equals speed times time so any speed multiplied by any time will give you the distance wherever you are on earth or on the moon or on mars so 
The divine mandate is in the sense a statement of universals. As the emanating source of the vast scheme of evolution, which is represented by the series. So just as you can unpack an algebraic formula and produce a whole load of numbers coming out of it as the series, but if you don't know the formula, you won't know the series. So in the same sense, the divine mandate is a statement of universals, which is why the perennial philosophy in one sense has been referred to as an algebraic exposition of truth, because it's a statement of universals. Wow. You know, and so it's actually, so what you've just describing there is when someone talks about the about that it's actually the elevation because i was actually imagining that 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 the world comes down to the level of mathematics but actually mm -hmm. the world is being expressed at a higher level mm -hmm. through mathematics is that right because we're talking about universals yeah amazing universals with a relative uh, you know because it is within its field of application yeah or generalities i should say yeah i just wonder if we look at we move now to to chapter six, mm -hmm. um, and it's that you describe cosmogenesis, the unfolding of consciousness, mm -hmm. and you have and, and you have cosmic planes with a capital yeah. K, yeah, and, um, and to terrestrial C, yeah. planes, mm -hmm. and you make a distinction between cosmic spelt with a K mm -hmm. and cosmic spelt with a C. Yes, the um, distinction is a what? subtle and important one. Cosmic with a C refers really to our own solar system and our own solar scheme cosmic with a k refers to all solar systems and all galaxies now if that sounds highly boastful again one invokes the hermetic axiom to um, to show that our solar scheme is not unique and separate from everything else it's an unfolding of the whole scheme of the universe and cosmic with a k is the closest one gets to the scientific idea of the multiverse which is one of the latest theories in science about our universe mm. and and what what we're going in just to keep our, our listeners um, with us mm -hmm. is we're now moving so we've been moving through um symbols and the language of the mystery teachings we're moving into the hermetic axiom as above so below which is which is a reference to why symbols can be so useful for us if we hold them lightly mm -hmm. and now you've got into um cosmogenesis um which is the unfolding of consciousness from from a higher plane to a lower plane um and so the in unfolding sense, of cosmos yeah yes right. mm -hmm. and so could you just go into just um what you mean by cosmogenesis because i know i know some listeners um and i certainly wasn't may not be entirely clear on what that is um, and cosmogenesis and cosmic planes well cosmogenesis is the origin and birth of cosmos cosmogony is the study of the origin and genesis of cosmos it's splitting hairs a bit cosmic planes i mean different levels of the cosmos in exactly 
the same way as the human being has different levels of consciousness. He has the, the, the physical, the, the astral, the mental and the spiritual. Likewise, if you just recall the Kabbalah diagram I showed you, there were the unmanifest and there were the manifest planes. So cosmic planes refers to centers of force and consciousness at different levels. And those different universes have their own constants uh, as science is slowly coming to realize. So the, the multiverse idea has really developed from recent um, ideas in cosmology and particle physics and led to the remarkable realization that our universe, rather than being unique, could be one of many universes, which is exactly what the ancient philosophies always said. So to, together as a totality, all these universes contain everything that exists, the entirety of space, time, matter, energy, and the laws and constants that govern them. And uh, Stephen Hawking with uh, uh, Herzog, I think, only a month before uh, he, he died, he wrote a, a paper showing mathematically uh, about the, the multiverse and, and providing mu mathematical evidence, uh, so to speak, of the multiverse. Mm. Mm. Yes, uh, it, is the, it is the most remarkable thing that as someone raised in a, in a Western um society mm. where anything outside of our society can't have been intelligent because we're the <laughs> pinnacle of it um and if and if you do say something intelligent from another culture then it was because you got lucky um mm. and and you found and so the idea that the ancient texts from literally thousands of years ago are now being proven in inverted commas by modern science, the high, mm. the cutting edge science. Mm. Um, I just wonder there must be some, you know, ancient hermit sat on a hill somewhere, just quietly nodding their head, going, "Well, you know, I told you, mm. or we told you." Yes. Um, well, we told you, and we saw it coming. Yes, and it was present. I guess it, that again, it, it, it brings us back to the importance of our senses and perception, mm. because if mm. If ancient cultures found this out themselves without the scientific insights or the tools that we have mm. today, mm. and it had to be through better use of their senses and, and their ability to, to comprehend what they were sensing. And seeing. Yes, mm. yes, yes, yes. Are you sensing in the in the in a way of, of using all the senses? So yes to seeing and also and the whole the whole experience of it. I know it's something that's that's becoming more um, mainstream now is the um, Akasha and, and astral light and the light. Akashic field. Mm. Um, in simple terms, Eddie, what, what is Akasha and what's astral light? Right. In simple terms, um, words like Akasha, words like primordial root matter, are being used in a variety of ways. Newton used the Latin word prima materia. And I've got a quick slide to show you on that. Mm. So all of these terms can convey the essential meaning of 
world substance of essential nature. And the finest definition of uh, Akasha comes from one of the greatest modern scientists, Irvin Laszlo. <laughs> and if I just read his definition of Akasha, which is good as any, he says, Akasha, the Sanskrit word meaning ether, all pervasive space, radiation or brilliance. In Indian philosophy, Akasha was considered the first and most fundamental of the five elements. It is the womb, the womb from which everything we perceive with our senses has emerged and into which everything will ultimately redescend. So the Akashic record is also called the Akashic Chronicle, is the enduring record of all that happens and has ever happened in the whole of the universe. So the astral light if, is the lowest, the dregs of the Akashic field, like the lining, the coarsest lining of your coat. And if I quickly show you Newton's um, own diagram of prima materia, just to make the point that these great scientists really knew what they were talking about. Right, can you see that, Jonathan? Mm, yeah. Right, you can see this? Yeah. If you look, I've underlined it in red. This is Newton's representation of primordial substance. Have a good look at the astrological symbols here. Here's Saturn, prima materia, the original substance. So what what is he demo what is he showing in that diagram then? What what he's showing in that diagram is how everything that has emanated, he, he refers to the rays, if you can see it, the rays from the central star, four lines above. I'm trying to get my mouse to uh, point to it. He's showing how from the center, from the central point, the prima material, everything else has emanated. All the other elements are subsumed in this central womb. So we read the diagram then from the center, the, in, 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 in the center, center it, it says prima materia. Yeah. And from that, all mm. the other. Yeah. And there's, there's seven, um, are they elements that? Well, I would say seven worlds. Seven worlds, than, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So if I quickly, cheekily go to a previous slide, we were talking again of the human body in symbolism and the veena is a beautiful Indian instrument which is built according to the structure of the human spine as you can see uh, in the diagram to the left. And was it was yeah. the intention to create the human body or the, in a symbol of the human body or is it? It's a celebration of the human being and wow. also to show that the human being is in the nature of a divine musical instrument because as a musical instrument has the apex and the foundation and the strings are between the apex and the foundation so the human being is strung 
like a musical instrument between atma and the physical body so i'll come out of this so anyway, i think what, what might be a good idea is if we just pause this conversation there we were hoping to do it in one go mm -hmm. i think we've just got there's so much in in volume three mm. um, so i hope the listeners are, are really getting the value of of this um, and what we'll do is we'll pause now and then let's restart again um, mm -hmm. and we'll we'll take them to the end of the um end of the book because we're coming sure. up to halfway on my questions mm -hmm. um and then we can um we can just have it in a digestible format for the, sure. the listeners so for, for the time being thanks very much eddie and mm -hmm. and we'll see you very very soon thank you for listening to the shepherd whirlwind podcast to explore these ideas further be sure to visit our website www.shepherdwalwin.com and join our mailing list for news and special offers. Check out our authors and buy the books to learn more. And you can also find us on social media. Links are also on the website. And if you like the podcast, please head over to iTunes or Spotify to give us a review. It's surprisingly helpful in getting the ideas out there. So until next time, keep reading. <laughs>